Hello, friends. Michael Youssef here. Thank you so much for connecting with Leading the Way and listening to this message. The entire team here at Leading the Way is committed to passionately proclaiming the uncompromising truth of God's Word. And it cannot be done without your prayers and your support and your partnership. Learn how God has uniquely positioned leading the way to reach a world that is in desperate need of the gospel when you visit ltw.org. That is ltw.org. Thank you, and may God richly bless you as you seek to serve Him. I'm told that uh, in the court of law, smart lawyers never ask a question that they don't know the answer to ahead of time. In fact, uh, I know there's some clever people in order to avoid answering a question, they always answer the question with a question. I read about this couple who every time the husband asks his wife a question, she always answers back with a question. And uh, he kind of went along with this for a long time. Finally, he got so frustrated, became angry, and he said, must you always answer my question with a question. She said, really? Do I do that? (laughs) In the Bible, you find some very important questions. These questions are asked by God, and God does not ask a question, does not know the answer to, because God knows everything. In fact, in every case, God asks this question as a method of communication with us humans in order to force us to face reality and be confronted by the truth. Today I'm going to look at some of these questions that God asks in his book. But there is one question that stands over all questions as the most important question for anyone who has ever lived on the face of this earth. Every human being. It is not one of the most important questions. It is the most important question of life. And Jesus asked that question in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. Here's what he said. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange of one's soul? This is the most important question that any of us will have to face in life that any of us must answer. Not one of, but the most important question. And guess what? Only Jesus could have asked that question. Nobody else could. A pastor could not ask that question. A priest cannot ask that question. A bishop cannot ask that question. A pope cannot ask that question. Only Jesus the Christ could have asked that question. Why? Because Jesus alone knows the value of the planet earth. After all, he created it. Jesus alone knows where every diamond mine is located. Jesus alone knows where the last nugget of gold is to be found. Jesus alone knows how many tons of silver are created back in Genesis. Jesus alone knows where the rubies and the sapphires and their value. Jesus alone knows where the last drop of oil is to be found. Jesus alone knows where the very last undiscovered treasure to be found. And that is why Jesus alone can 
stack up all of the wealth of the world, all of the treasures of the world, all of the riches of the world on one side of the scale, and then he places the human soul on the other side of the scale, and he says, only a wise person, only a wise person would refuse to trade his soul for all of these riches of the world. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his own soul? Christ alone could ask that question of every human being that's ever lived. Because after all, he created us. Christ alone knows the value of the human soul. To him, the human soul is so important that he left the splendor of heaven and the glories of heaven and he became man. It is the value of the human soul that caused the creator of all the earth to come and become homeless and poor and sweat blood and be beaten until his flesh was torn and be slapped until his body was black and blue. It is the value of your soul that caused the God of power and might to hang helplessly on a cross of Calvary and then rise again on the third day. But the question that most people have asked for 2,000 years, this is not a modern question. For 2,000 years, people ask the question, but why? Why did God have to leave the splendor of heaven and the majesty and become a man? Why? Why didn't God just yell from heaven, hey folks, do your best. Try to reach me by doing the best that you can. Try to please me by doing more good than bad. As many people want to think. They really do. That's their idea of God. That's what they want God to have done. They do not understand why would God leave heaven, come to this earth, live the poorest of the poor, die on a cross, rise again. They don't understand. And the reason for that is because we human want to see things from our point of view. We don't want to see them from God's point of view. And the most important thing for you today to do is to see things from God's point of view, not our point of view. Here's the problem. God is perfect. And only perfect people can approach a perfect God. Only perfect people can come to his heaven. we got a dilemma on our hands. None of us are perfect. None of us can be perfect. I'm told that astronauts who go to space must have a space suit or else they are toast. And in the same way, from a spiritual perspective, that's our condition. Without the space suit that only Jesus Christ can give you, we're toast. <laughs> we're done for. Because none of us are perfect, none of us can be perfect. And yet, that's the demand of God. But God is the one who provided the answer. God is the one who provided the solution. The perfect God became man, lived perfectly, so that everyone who would accept him gets that space suit that makes him or her qualified for heaven. The perfect God carried on that cross the sins of everyone who would come to him and would receive his forgiveness and receive him as Lord and as Savior and become perfect in God the Father's eyes. That's the only way. That's the way God did it. Now, my friend, I want to tell you something. This is Christianity in a nutshell. You know all that other stuff? 
All that religious stuff is just stuff. It really is. This is Christianity. This is the core of the Christian faith. What is it? That you can exchange your sin with which you're born for his perfection. That you can exchange your sin with his forgiveness. That you can exchange your guilt with his peace. That you can exchange your restlessness for his contentment. That you can exchange your fear for his faith. That you can exchange your doubt for his assurance. That you can exchange your destination from hell to heaven. That is Christianity in a nutshell. I want to tell you something. This is a big deal. This is the best deal you're ever going to be offered. Ask me. I grew up in the Middle East. I know a bargain when I see one. <laughs> there is no bargain like this one. I can exchange my sin for his perfection. That is the bottom line of the Christian faith. That is the Christian faith in two sentences. But you must understand. See, this is not a pie in the sky in the by and by. This is not, as Karl Marx put it, the opium of the people where you're supposed to surrender your brain and surrender your mind and become a zombie. No! This is not something about trying to get you to join a church or join a denomination or join a Christian institution. No! This is the testimony of millions of people around the world who have discovered the peace and the joy and the purpose for life that can only come from that great exchange. What good is it if a man gains the whole world and loses and forfeits his soul? This is the most important question. And I pray to God that will haunt every one of us until we satisfactory answer that question. Why? Why? Because God loves you. Because he loves you. And because he loves you, he provided only one way back to him. I know those of you old enough to remember Forrest Gump, where he quoted his mother, life is a box of chocolate. God says, no. Eternal life is not a box of chocolate you can pick and choose. Eternal life is only one way, one Savior, one road. And God says, because I love you, I am providing you only one way to be accepted by me. Only one way for your peace of mind here and now. Only one way for the assurance of heaven whenever it comes. Now, if you are like me, I'm sure you've heard this false statement banded about by a lot of people. In fact, banded by some church people. What's that false statement? It goes something like this. All the ways lead to God, right? All religions were basically different ways of reaching the same goal. That all the ways are going to lead you to heaven. Really? Or if you do some good, it's going to basically obliterate the bad and you'll make it to heaven. There's one problem with these statements. They're false. God said they're false. God said they're not true. Because God from cover to cover in his book said there is only one plan. There is only one way. There is only one Savior. And as I said, the Bible asks numerous questions in order to force us to confront reality. In order to bring us to the point of understanding and come face to face with the truth. In order to make the decisions that God wanting us to make. 
One of those questions are found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. In fact, it is the very first question that God asked to our first human ancestor, Adam. And here's what God asked Adam. He said, where are you? Where are you? After disobeying God's command, Adam was hiding from God, thinking that he could hide from God. (laughs) Here's the important thing. Listen carefully. God could have scolded Adam. God could have ambushed Adam. God could have done anything. He's God, right? God could have condemned Adam and said, You fool, don't you know that I can see everything? Don't you know that I know everything? But God didn't do that. That's the greatness of God. That's the majesty of God. God merely asked, Where are you? Where are you? Not because God did not know where Adam was. Of course he knew. God is asking the question in order to force Adam to come to face to face with truth. And listen, God is asking you today, where are you? Where are you? Where do you stand toward God? Where do you stand in relationship to the love of God that has been calling you and wooing you? Where do you stand? Why? Why is God asking that question? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to come to a confession. He wanted Adam to confess his sin so that he may have been forgiven. But instead, Adam rationalized and played the blame game. She did it. He did it. Well, she and they started passing the blame game. And we've been passing the blame game ever since. God wanted Adam to say, yes, Lord, I have allowed Satan to seduce me and disobey you. Yes, Lord, I have allowed false ideas of who you are to mislead me. Yes, Lord, I have allowed some false philosophies to keep me away from you. Yes, Lord, I'm sorry, for I have allowed my desires to cloud my vision of who you are. And my dear friend, God is asking every one of us today, every one of you today, he is saying, where do you stand in relationship to me? Where are you? What is causing you to think that you can run away from me? What is keeping you from my heaven and the assurance of my heaven? What is holding you back from experiencing my comfort and my joy and my forgiveness that is only possible through my son Jesus? What is stopping you from knowing me and knowing me as a loving father? Where are you? Today God is inviting you to come to him. God is inviting you to confess. God is inviting you to receive his eternal forgiveness. Not to rationalize, not to explain away. Because he sees everything. He knows everything. Will you respond to him? Well, the second question that is asked is actually the second question that was asked in the Bible. And it's in the next chapter, book of Genesis. First book of the Bible. So 1 in 3.9. This is in 4.9. It's a question that God asked Cain after he killed his brother Abel. God asked him, where is your brother Abel? God knew the answer. God saw what happened. Again, God wanted Cain to confront his sin. 
God wanted him to confess his sin so he may forgive him. Because our God is a loving God, but he waits until we confess. You see, God sees all things. He knows all things. But the question tells you something about the nature of God. The question that God asked Cain is the same question that he asks us in order that he may give us an opportunity to confess our sins and receive the forgiveness from his hands. Some of you probably saying in your mind, wait a minute, Michael. (laughs) This guy killed his brother. I never killed anybody. I don't commit any of these big sins. You see, you're seeing things from your perspective, from your point of view, not from God's. From God's point of view, there is no small sin and a big sin. Sin is sin. Whether you miss the mark, God's mark, by one inch or ten miles, you miss the mark. You know that white lies that you tell? They cry to God. You know that money that you took doesn't belong to you, padding your expense account or whatever you do? It cries to God. You know that seething hatred that you have that you're filled with and you wish somebody was dead? It's a sin that cries out to God. And when God asks the question, he already knows the answer. But he wants us to have an opportunity to confess. He wants us to come to him in humility. Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I desperately need your forgiveness. He says, okay, you got it. That's his promise. I'm not making the stuff up. It's in his book. (laughs) And only Jesus Christ's death on the cross can bring you that forgiveness. Well, Just in case there's somebody still here saying, yeah, but I still think God is really concerned with the big sins. He's not concerned with the little sins. Now, I want to ask you a question. Okay? I know there's some questions only Jesus can ask, but I can ask you this one. What was Adam's sin that got him kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Was it murder? He didn't kill anybody. (laughs) The only other human being there was Eve, and she was alive and well. Got him into trouble, but she was alive and well. <laughs> was it adultery? There was nobody to commit adultery with. Eve was the only one there. It's his wife. So what was the sin that caused Adam to get thrown out of the garden? And then by hereditary genes, we've inherited the same sin. It's simply this, disobeying God. Disobedience to God and his word and his plan is the root of all sins. All sins are just the fruit of that one root. God said to Adam, it's my way or the highway. Adam said, the highway. And we've been there ever since. (laughs) He got us all there. Until God provided a way out back to himself. But then there was another question that the Bible asks, and this time is not asked by God. It's not asked by the Lord Jesus. It is asked by Job. Remember Job? We talk about the patience of Job. In chapter 14, verse 14 of the book of Job, Job asks a question, an important one. If a man dies, will he live again? And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came from heaven, became a man, died on a cross and rose again, he was saying to Job, Job, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm not going to answer it in words. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to rise again to answer your question. And the answer is yes. When a man dies, we'll live again. 
Not long ago, I was talking to a precious lady, a lovely lady, dear person, and she said to me, she said, I'm deathly terrified of death. And she said, I'm doing everything I can to avoid the subject. She said, I'm so terrified of the unknown, so I'm trying to convince myself that when I die, that's it. I just die. That's the end of it. You know what I said to her? (laughs) I said, your fear is justified. It really is. It is justified. Because God did not create us so that we may vanish at death, God created us to live forever. Our bodies will die, but our souls are immortal. And our souls can only go into one of two places, heaven with Jesus or hell with Satan. Regardless of your denominational background, regardless of your religion, regardless of your rituals, regardless of your activities, only Jesus can take you from one into the other. In this life, God gives us the opportunity to choose. And the choice we make in this life determines our destiny. The choice we make here and now will determine our eternal future. The choice we make here and now will either make us live in fear or joyous expectations. So what's the answer? What's the answer to Job's question? Jesus is the only one could have answered that one. And when Jesus Christ came from heaven, died on a cross, and rose again on the third day, he answered the question. Not just in words, as I said, but in action. Where hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and saw with their eyes the resurrected Christ and were willing to die because of what they saw. Those who saw the resurrected Christ They saw him rising from the dead as an answer to Job's question. His resurrection says, yes, Job, every human being will live again. Yes, Job, every human being will eternally live on. Yes, Job, every human being will end up in one of two places. Which brings me full circle back to that most important question that I began with. What good is it? If a man gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul. See, Jesus asks this question because he knows that our souls are eternal. That our souls are immortal. That there was a time when you were not, but there will never be a time when you will not be. A million years from now, you will be living either in heaven with Jesus or in torment with Satan. Your eternal existence is sure. The question is, where are you going to spend it? Where are you going to spend it? I want to tell you this true story as I bring this message to an end. It was the year 79 AD. A volcano erupted in the city of Pompeii, Italy. Of the 20,000 inhabitants of the city of Pompeii, some 2,000 people lost their lives. Among those 2,000 people who died there was a woman who obviously loved her jury. 
let me explain this. As the deadly rain of fire came down upon the city, people ran literally with the clothes or sometimes even without clothes into the ships that were anchored at a harbor nearby. And this woman was like others. She was trying to escape and run for her life. Escaping out of any danger is a very wise thing to do. Escaping from the judgment that is coming upon this world is an extremely wise thing to do. And that is why the Bible says it over and over and over again. Be wise and escape from the judgment that is coming upon the earth. And that is why God provided a way out, a way of escape through Jesus' cross on Calvary. But this rich and beautiful woman in Pompeii hesitated just long enough to lose her life. Let me tell you about her. Before running out of her house, she decided to collect as many of her precious jewels as she could carry. She snatched some of the rings and and hastily thrust them into her fingers. There's no time to look for a box or a bag in order to cram the rest of her jewels. So she literally clutched onto them grabbed as many as she could hold, and she began to run. She rushed into the streets, clutching into her diamonds and her pearls, embracing her rubies and her sapphires, her gold and her silver, and she ran out of her house. Today, experts value that stuff, a very large amount of money. But alas, alas, Her trip back to the house to rescue her precious jewels cost her her life. Her love for her wealth took away those precious moments that she needed to escape. For by the time she grabbed her jewels and ran back into the streets, the poisonous fumes from the volcano overwhelmed her with the trinkets in her hands. And she stumbled and fell and died. What does it profit a man or a woman or a young man, young woman, to gain the whole world and forfeit his or her soul? She died clutching the things she prized the most. She was buried under the ashes of Pompeii with all her wealth. So how do we know this? Only a few years ago, members of an archaeological excavation team found her. She's still lovely. Her hands were still clutching on her jewels. And I guess I'm sure if you're like me, you want to ask her some questions. Why? Why did you go back for those things that ultimately cost you your life? Why would you die for even all the wealth in the world? Because the Some of you, to you, jewels are not important. That's not your thing. But you are clutching onto your ideas of who God is and what God should do 
And why is this and why is that? And you're holding onto those false philosophies, those false ideas that could cost you eternity. Except this can be far more deadly than just physically dying. You must understand what Jesus is asking here. What he's saying here. He is saying that the perishing of the soul is far more serious than perishing of the body. And that is why only Jesus could ask that question. Because nobody, nobody can love you more than Jesus. And he is saying, what can you really gain if you have all these things, your precious ideas and your precious philosophies and your precious convictions, if they run counter to what God wants you to do? And the answer really is nothing. See, nothing would be something. But the answer is a colossal loss. Eternity without God. I want you to imagine with me, just imagine with me, the God who tells the sun to rise in the morning, the God who sends the rain for the grass to grow and for the crops to grow, the God who maintains his beautiful earth creation. Imagine you're living in a place where none of that exists. None of that exists. Imagine that. Because that is what a Christless eternity is all about. When you reject a salvation plan, you spend your forever in utter darkness, extreme loneliness, continuously falling into a dark pit. Ah, but listen, here's the good news. He is stretching out his hands to you right now. He's saying, come to me. I love you. Come to me. My son died on a cross for you. He provided a way of escape. And it's the only way that's acceptable to me. Try all the other stuff. This is a great invitation. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? It is the prayer of my heart and many people that you would say yes to Jesus. You're the only one who can make that decision. Nobody can force you to it. Nobody can manipulate you into it. No, no, no. Only you and God. And as we pray, if that is your prayer, you can pray with me in the privacy of your own heart. Shall we pray together? If this is your prayer, I can say, Father, I come to you. I receive Jesus' forgiveness. I confess that I'll never reach perfection. But his perfection is the only perfection that's going to get me to heaven. I receive humbly his forgiveness that he may come and dwell in me and guide me for the rest of my life. In that name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. 